So for the next four weeks, we're going to be reading parts of and discussing a book called Jesus Through the Centuries. And this book was taken from a lecture series that the author gave at Yale back in the 1980s. And the author is someone named Yaroslav Pelikan. It's J-A-R-O-S-L-A-V. And Pelican is kind of an interesting guy in the world of theologians and church historians. He wrote over 30 books, the most important of which was a five-volume history of the church. And he also worked on the English translations of Luther's works that we use today. Pelican was also a Lutheran in the Missouri Synod. But when he didn't like where the LCMS was going, he ended up joining the Orthodox Church later in his life. One of his most famous ideas was that traditionism is the dead faith of the living and that tradition is the living faith of the dead. So Pelican is interested in looking at how doctrine and ideas and things that are believed to be true change over time. And the book that we're reading is an interesting case study in what that kind of work looks like. It's a book about how our questions about ourselves, the questions that we find the most important, are ended up embedding themselves in our ideas about Jesus. Early on in the book, Pelican quotes Albert Schweitzer, who wrote on the historical Jesus, who said that if you want to know what someone thinks about the present, have them write a book about the life of Jesus. There's another Schweitzer quote where he compares talking about writing about the historical Jesus to looking down a well that's so deep that the only thing you can see at the bottom is your own reflection. So Jesus through the centuries is a look at what those reflections have looked like throughout history. The first essay we're going to look at this week is called The Rabbi. And Pelican is looking at the Jewishness of Jesus here. One of the most common titles for Jesus used in the Gospels is Rabbi. For example, Jesus teaches primarily through conversation. And one way he does that is with parables, stories that have no clear meaning, stories that need to be unpacked and argued about. The story of the Good Samaritan, for example, is a story about what it means to be a neighbor. Who are you responsible for? The other way that Jesus does it is by turning questions around on their heads. When you read Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, so often he turns questions around back on them. Pelican compares Jesus to a rabbi who's approached by a student who asks, why do you so often put your teaching in the form of a question? To which the rabbi replies, What's wrong with a question? Jesus also draws on the Jew Jewish tradition of prophets, people who speak to the people on behalf of God. And here there's some innovation, some changing, some playing around with tradition. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus is playing with tradition here. There's a blend of the rabbinic and prophetic traditions. Jesus says, you have heard it said, the rabbinic tradition, but I tell you, the prophetic tradition. The other two major titles for Jesus are Messiah, translated into Greek as Christos, or where we get Christ from, and Lord. And what's interesting about these two titles is how they were stripped of their Jewish context and meaning. Rabbi and prophet sound Jewish to us, but Christ and Lord really don't. For a rejoinder to this, Pelican points out Mark Chagall's white crucifixion. The crucified Christ in this painting isn't wearing nondescript scraps of clothing, but he's wearing a talith, the clothing of a devout rabbi, a reminder that the crucified Christ was in fact Jewish. Forgetting Jesus' Jewishness might not seem like a big deal, but Pelican suggests that it's had disastrous consequences. I'm going to quote at length here. 
quote, would there have been such anti-Semitism? Would there have been so many pogroms? Would there have been an Auschwitz if every Christian church and every Christian home had focused its devotion on icons of Mary, not only as the mother of God and queen of heaven, but as the Jewish maiden in the new Miriam, and on icons of Christ not only as Panto Crator, but as Rabbi Jeshua bar Joseph, Rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, in the context of the history of a suffering Israel and a suffering humanity. Close quote. The second essay we're going to be talking about is called King of Kings. And Pelican starts out the essay by talking about the scene and the passion where Pilate asks Jesus if he's king. And if you read through the Bible, Jesus sure sounds a lot like a king. In Matthew, behold, your king is coming to you. In Luke, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In Revelation, Jesus is called Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So is Jesus a king or not? What Pelican is getting at here is what's the relationship between the claim that Jesus is the king of kings and actual temporal secular kings. For the first three centuries of the church, the Roman Empire was largely a threat to the church. Jesus was a king in opposition to other kinds of kings who ruled by fear and intimidation. And then in the year 312, something strange happens. A man named Constantine is trying to take control of the Roman Empire, and he has a dream one night that involves what's called the Cairo, which is the first two letters of, of Christ in Greek. And when he wakes up, he decides to put them on his army's shields. And after his army wins, he decides that this was God's doing. So he converts to Christianity. And now, instead of being persecuted, the church is favored within the empire. Exactly what happened is unclear. It's unclear what was in this dream and how pure the conversion was, and exactly what he believed. Constantine ends up having a huge effect on the church. If you had to pick just a few dates in the history of the church that really mattered, that really changed the direction of history, this would be one of them. It would be up there next to 1517, the start of the Reformation, 1054, the Great Schism between East and West, the destruction of the Temple in year 70, 312 will be right up there as a time that changes the history of the church irreversibly. One of the most important things that Constantine does is he calls a conference of the church. And he wants everyone to go to get on the same page with doctrine. One of the ironies of Constantine's reign is that he's pretty lax about non-Christians. Christianity isn't enforced or mandated. But if you are a Christian, you have to adhere to very strict rules of doctrine. So he calls the Council of Nicaea to determine whether Jesus is divine. And the council decides that Jesus is divine. And they say that he's begotten, not created, of one being with the Father. The words we use in the Nicene Creed that we use in worship. So already three centuries after Jesus' death, there's a lot of development that's happened in how we think about Jesus. One of the great ironies of church history is that an itinerant rabbi who was killed by the Roman Empire ended up becoming the very symbol of that empire. <laughs>